This is The Guardian. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Has Rob Holding been watching Leeds lately? Two rash moments from him cost Arsenal the chance to get back into the North London derby after Harry Kane's early penalty. Was this the moment Conte's Tottenham came alive or just an easy win over 10 men? Is giving correct decisions a conspiracy against Arsenal or am I just part of the biased London-based woke media? And just what would Mikel Arteta have to say to get banned for six months? So the race for the top four, one point in it, two games to go. It almost couldn't be closed. Closer. After John Bruin mooted the idea for the first time yesterday that the magic of the FA Cup had gone, uh, we'll look ahead to this season's showpiece. There's a title race and the playoffs to chat about. Who wants some you-cannot-possibly-lose magic beans from Michael Owen? Are Newcastle United trolling people who care about human rights with their leaked new away shirt? How many English teams should rightfully be in the Champions League? And why has there been so much reaction to the size of Barry's posterior? All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Ralph says, does Barry know there's a podcast tomorrow? Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello, I, I, I am well aware of it and uh, here I am. Wonderful news. Nick Ames, hello. I, I'm very much aware of this podcast and here I am. And Jordan Jarrett Bryan, make it, a, <laughs> make it a full house. I'm fully aware and I'm also here. Good morning all. Excellent news. Uh, Neil says, I'm trying to think of a better example of nominative determinism in football than Rob Holding this evening. Uh, Batch says... How much footballing ability did Rob Holding have to sacrifice to get his hairline back? Um, to which Alex responded, I hate to break it to you, but he wasn't very good before it either. Um, James says, can someone please tell Arsenal the way they played was totally not Kulisevsky, bro. And Joe said, I never thought I'd say this, but can I hear more from Jordan, please? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, 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 let's talk about the big moments. Um, because before the penalty, it was a pretty even game. Perhaps Arsenal was slightly better. I am biased. Um, it's definitely a foul. I can see why Arsenal fans would be annoyed because they're not often given, but it is still a foul. Jordan, you are biased. Uh, your thoughts firstly on the penalty incident. I don't think it was a penalty. I did I did it first. And then on a few more viewings, I, I don't think it's a foul. Uh, I think it's really poor defending from, from Suarez. I don't know what he's doing. But poor defending doesn't necessarily equal a foul. The, the, the two, you can defend badly and it not necessarily be a foul. Um, you're giving me a really weird look. Obviously, listeners can't see that. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, like what he pushed him. Didn't like it's like like it's it's a foul. I, I don't think he has pushed. Him. I 
I think there's contact. Okay. I don't think there's a foul. Okay. Anyway, we're both biased, right? So we, we can't we can't see it. Uh, Barry is not biased. Nick is not biased. Let's go to Nick first. I think I've seen them given. I've seen them not given. And certainly in real time, when that ball came over and there was a bit of a tumble of a back stick, I wasn't. I mean, I've, I was watching on on TV, and I. I I didn't instantly think that screams a penalty. Has there been a handball? Has there been some some commotion or something? But but you look back and he it's a cliche that people use, isn't it? But he gives the referee a decision to make by putting his body in a silly position and ultimately pushing his man. And if you see the eye line as well that um Portini the ref had, he was right behind it. It was it, it was the perfect position for, for a referee to make that call. Often often we can criticize the positioning of refs, but not here. He was ten to twelve yards behind it. Straight line view. And I think if you're if, if you're gonna put yourself in a situation like that where you haven't exactly got a six foot ten inch centre forward about to bury a header you've got to defend a lot more acutely. And I, I think if if Tomayasu had, had been there for Arsenal, for example, at that post, he'd, he'd have probably got his head on it or used his body in the right way. But it was sadly very naive from from Cedric. And, and I think um, maybe maybe we'll come to this in in general, but um, I, I think the problems Arsenal have when they're first choice 11 on all on the pitch um, veered up last night because we saw a couple of players who aren't quite up to the level maybe showing it. Barry, uh, on the penalty? I thought it was a penalty. I thought Cedric and Rob Holding were both, just seemed terrified of Son and were going all out to just do anything necessary to stop him. And it was clumsy. And Barney makes the point regularly that yes, football is a game of collisions, but that that was a clear foul. Um, uh, let's go to the, the the Rob holding yellow cards. Then uh, uh, what I thought, Jordan, was you saw Ben Davis get a yellow against Saka, and it was definitely a yellow card, and it was actually a good foul to make. Rob Holding's first yellow. There's no need to do it, right? And he's already been warned. And the second, he basically puts his forearm into Son's face. So I don't quite understand the meltdown on social media. I don't quite understand Arteta saying, I, if I said anything... Well, well to, be, to be clear, Max, it wasn't his forearm. It was his shoulder. Okay, so. okay. Okay, no, no, okay. I'm biased. So I, I saw it wrong. And that's... Well, no, at, least, it, at least describe what happened because it's not going to help if you're saying things that didn't happen. No, 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 you're right. It isn't going to help. So... Um, Okay, shoulder, puts his shoulder in. It looks like a second booking. But so naive, Jordan, I thought. It, it, it was naive. and They had a little bit of a back and forth in that, in that opening half um, as it was. And I think Son, Son's clearly quicker than, than Holding. So you could argue that maybe, you know, and Nick makes the point about Tomiyasu being in the situation with the penalty, he would have dealt with it better. You could argue that if he'd have maybe gone to a back three and put Tomiyasu on Son, he could have he could have handled Son better. Holding was struggling. He was warned. He was booked. There was an elbow. I thought on this. I think it was the second foul that Holding made on Son. There was a slight swinging of the elbow from Son on Holding. However, Holding was struggling, and it's it's a second yellow card. It is the shoulder, but the momentum of of what he does try and block him. You could argue it's possibly a straight red, potentially in itself anyway. So there, I have no sympathy for Holding um, at, at all. I just want to say I don't personally have an issue per se with the with the penalty being given and the red card being given. I, I'm, I have a bigger issue with how Arsenal managed the game in between those incidents. 
my big thing before the game, I was saying to a lot of my Arsenal pals was game management. If we go 1-0 down, don't capitulate. Manage the game. You know, see it out. Get to half time. See... But once you go into 10 men and you're 2-0 down, it's pretty much game over against a Conte team. And that is what disappointed me more than the actual, the, 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 the dumbness of what Holding and, 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 and Cedric Suarez did. It was more that we didn't have to win that game. And I think it's one of those rare North London derbies where if you play, play it smart and use your head rather than your heart and, and, and you know, have, a, have a passionate fight with Spurs... We could have got something from that match, but I think we got we got embroiled in a in a battle we didn't need to get embroiled in in into. And I think Spurs wanted to make it a bit niggly. Spurs wanted to make it um, a bit feisty because they had to drag us to their level. I don't think Arsenal had to do that, and that for me, uh, we might mention Arteta a bit later, but I think that for me as an Arsenal fan was the most disappointing thing. And I'm fearful now. I I, I think they've blown top four personally because I'm not convinced they get a win at Newcastle. And I just think that was the game where you needed heads over hearts. Yeah, I I'm, I, I agree with you about the game management especially. And I, I don't think we can separate what Holding did from that. I think it's exactly the same thing. I was, I was watching on my sofa with my girlfriend who I can promise you had never heard of Rob Holding before last night. Uh, after the first foul um, that he made, the first one after a few minutes, she said, oh, I think that guy's going to get sent off tonight. And I said, no, nah, it's, 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 it's Rob Holding. He's not exactly your clatter everyone one about centre-half. But he, he went into that game as if he had, as if he was openly wound up a bit of a point to prove. And I, I, I do wonder whether after the first foul, after the second foul, Arteta should, or someone on that, touchline or somebody on the pitch maybe maybe Arsenal is suffering a bit from not having a really experienced captain here just go up and have a word in the air and say all right mate that's enough we know what sort of game this is you're going to get in trouble or you rotate you, you rotate the fouling a little bit and get Elneny to do the next one for example I just I, I just felt the fact that holding kept coming back for more and was allowed to keep coming back for more is not totally on him, and now they've got a problem at centre back, especially given given that Gabriel, we don't know how how he is. He got a bit injured towards the end. Arteta clearly didn't want to lean on Ben White last night. Clearly didn't want to give, give him a full hour, um, given that he's had his his hamstring problems. And I felt, yeah, I felt the way that Holding dealt with that situation with Son, and the way that the, the management and the team dealt with it could have been much much better. I I think he could have had a bit better support. Barry, um, I've seen some people say, you know, the atmosphere sounded great at, at the stadium. I've seen some people saying, you know, this is a, a game-changing moment for Conte. I'm not quite so sure because I think the four, the penalty, it was pretty even. And, and we know Spurs are, are good at attacking. But I, I don't know if this was a, a landmark performance for them necessarily. Maybe it wasn't how he's viewed by Tottenham supporters. I mean... I suppose we should probably put the game in context for people who may have forgotten. We all know what was at stake and, you know, we all know how much these two teams hate each other and the rivalry between them. And this game was originally scheduled for mid-January. Arsenal asked for it to be called off because of the COVID crisis, despite the fact that Martin Odegaard was the only player in their squad who had COVID. They had loads of injuries. Granite Xhaka was suspended, a, couple of play- a few players away at AFCON. And they just loaned out two players in the days building up to the game. Uh, So Tottenham were understandably furious about the game being postponed. So there's 
a lot of acrimony, surround, even more acrimony than usual surrounding the fixture because of that and because of the top four being at stake. And I think for Tottenham to win so emphatically that with 20 minutes to go in a North London derby with so much at stake, they were actually able to take off key players to rest them for their next games. That that's embarrassing for Arsenal, you know. That that's a humiliation. The Olays going around early in the second half as Tottenham passed the ball around, and I think they could have won by a lot more. But they just said, "No, we've done enough. Let's let's relax and focus on the two games to come." So in in that regard, Arsenal were embarrassed, and that can only increase Conte's standing in the eyes of Tottenham fans. Um. After the game, Mikel Arteta said, like, I cannot say what I think, otherwise I will be suspended for six months. I want the referee to come in front of the cameras and explain his decisions because we were so excited to play this game and this beautiful occasion was destroyed tonight. Nick, look, he's not the first manager to come out and just blame something that isn't himself. But does anyone buy it? Like, who, who is he talking to? Because, okay, the fans who are completely one-eyed, as I am, you know, uh, with Rob with Holding's forearm that didn't actually hit some. But, you know, the, the fans who are so one-eyed might lap it up. But, but really, they're not going to replay the game. We know those decisions were pretty much the right decisions. So what's, who's he talking to there? He's, he's talking as well to his, um, to his players, or at least reflecting a message, because I, I totally get it. They've got a game at Newcastle on Monday night now um, that I'll be covering. That is, that is absolutely massive. And if you, if you start digging people out now or either creating or exposing or suggesting any, any kind of friction or, 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 or you know, discontent about how things are going... You're going to cause a problem. It's far better at this point of the season to maybe paper over any cracks with a bit of a bunker mentality. And I think that, that goes as well with what you communicate to the supporters, which is important because you probably don't want them giving it out too much as well. Um, and it's very important with what you communicate to the, to the dressing room. And look, I, um, Arteta comes out with that and I, I, um, I can see why in, in the heat of the moment you're annoyed with those decisions because, you know, it's the biggest game of your managerial career. You will have your your view on it. But I also think, I, I know he is very, very self-critical, Mikel Arteta. He, he, he really, really is. Like, he, he will not have slept last night and he'll be thinking of a lot of different things that he could have, could have done better, how he could have handled it, how the team could have calmed down that 10, 15 minute spell that we've spoken about um, between the penalty and the red and I, I'm pretty sure that it'll be a bit of both in Arteta's said he he will not be unaware that him and Arsenal did stuff on last night and um, and that they still have that little habit I mean they they showed it in the Man City game at home I think in January-ish when they they outplayed them for most of the game and then a couple of decisions that they didn't like but were probably the right decisions that went their way involving Gabriel I think they still have that habit when the going is getting good for them in a big game, just to sometimes show a bit of immaturity and naivety. And I think the same goes for the management, to be honest. I think it was um, embarrassing from Mikel Arteta. He does this a lot. 
Football managers, for me, in my view, only get a certain amount of bullshit cards a season, and you've got to use your bullshit card sparingly. And what I mean by a bullshit card is how many do you, how many do you get, Jordan? Oh, I get a lot. <laughs> I get a, lot. <laughs> a full deck of fifty-two, <laughs> one a week. Touche. I walked into that one. All right, all right, all right. Um, I, I think, and what I mean by a bullshit card is you come in front of the cameras after a game and you just basically talk bullshit. But I think there are certain games where you could maybe get away with it. I don't think this is one of those games. I think he's used up one of his cards where he's embarrassed himself by by implying, saying pretty much, that the referee's done us over and the referee got it all wrong. The referee had a bad performance. Like I said, apart from the penalty, and even that is contentious, the referee didn't get anything wrong for me. I thought Spurs were the better team. And I think he gives his players an out by constantly coming out to the the, 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 the media and, and talking crap. And also there's an issue about red cards. He has to address... I don't think the game was lost per se because of his, manage, his management, you know, as a, as a manager. But I think there's a theme happening throughout the season whereby there's so many red cards that are costing Arsenal. And I've got a feeling that if they don't get top four, it'll be because so many red cards in so many games this year are causing him to, to lose games that they don't need to be losing. So I, I, I thought it was embarrassing. He's also letting the fan base get away with talking rubbish because there's so many Arsenal fans overnight that I'm speaking to and seeing online crying about the referee, crying about decisions. And I'm just like, this is nonsense, but I believe it's all been set by Mikel Arteta. And he needs to stop it because it's really cringe. If um, Paul Tierney did come out and explain himself, as Arteta suggested he should... It wouldn't make any difference because those conspiracy not Arsenal fans, and we know several of them personally, and they're generally normally quite intelligent, sane people, but they just they've lost their minds as far as refereeing conspiracies against Arsenal are concerned. Not there is nothing Paul Tierney could say that would change their opinions of him or the decisions he made. So it would be an absolute waste of everyone's time. The mention of the red cards, since Arteta took charge of Arsenal. They have had 13 red cards. The next highest is eight, Brighton and Everton and Southampton with seven. So, you know, sometimes it can be a bit of a coincidence, but that is quite a big, that is quite a big jump. Nick, you watch Arsenal a lot. They, it, they don't strike me as a team who kick a lot of people either. No, but I think the um, one of the issues is that they needed to be a bit more of a physically imposing team that maybe gave it out a bit more, but had kind of had players that don't know how to do it. So, so you, so you end up sort of being, being, um, being like the bully kid in the in the playground who sort of goes around pulling people's hair or, or or something like that. Like, it just ends up going a bit wrong. And I think, you know, they they did need to get a bit better at the dark arts and being being a bit more niggly and a bit in in, in people's faces. But I don't necessarily think they've got the in, the, the individuals to do it as. As Rob Holding showed showed yesterday, like he's he's not he's a perfectly competent, probably mid-table Premier League defender, but he, but he's not he's sort of dominant tough guy centre half who who you know attackers fear. And his way of stopping Son yesterday is just by grappling all over him in a very obvious way three times, and then and obviously with that charge that they got him sent off, it's it's not going to wash. So I think you need to sign players or or have players at your disposal who are a bit better those more slow parts of the game. And I think that's been Arsenal's issue. They've tried to play tougher, but haven't necessarily got the players to 
do it when they come up against more practiced opposition. It, it, it works sometimes, but in games like last night, it doesn't. Jordan, if at the start of the season I had offered you with two games to go, you have to play the current incarnation of Newcastle away and the current incarnation of Everton at home and win both games to qualify for the Champions League, would you have taken it or would you have expected better at, before the season started? Oh, no, Barry. One, I would have taken that 100%. Arsenal, I don't think we're predicted to be anywhere near top four. Um, so, no, I, I think I would have taken that scenario, um, grabbed it with both hands. I, I, I just, I think, although Arsenal had the advantage in that they have a point over Spurs, those two fixtures against Spurs' two fixtures, I just think are slightly harder. And I, I don't see Spurs dropping any points in those two games against Norwich and Burnley. Um, and I'm, I'm fearful that going to St. James's Park their last home game of the season. Um, I think it's an evening game, I believe, on a Monday night. That, that just gives me memories of the Crystal Palace game a few weeks back where that was a Monday night game. I just think, I'm not sure this team copes well with raucous crowds at night. Um, so that, that's my concern. But yeah, no, no, I'd rather be in a position now than where I thought we would be uh, come pre-season. I mean, there is one thing that you're forgetting, Jordan, and it is Tottenham who are the other team involved in this. you know, And lots of people like Nathan getting in touch. Would Spurs losing to Burnley on Sunday after giving that brilliant performance tonight be officially the most Spursy of all Spursy things to ever happen? I remember that after they beat Man City at the Etihad, the next game was at Turf Moor and they lost that one. It was the one where Conte had a, a meltdown that he was laughing about last night. Thomas says, if Tottenham and Arsenal are still fighting for fourth on the final day, is it the first time since Pastagate or Lasagna Gate? And what would the panel like to advise the Tottenham chef? <laughs> M. Osmond says, was Jordan on Arsenal fan TV for the North London derby? I, I clicked on that link You're in the back row of, of Arsenal fan TV. Just minding my own business, watching a football game, Max, mm. as you do. How, how was that? Do you know what I really noticed? Because I obviously have never watched Arsenal fan TV apart from the bits where they're really yelling. Is quite a lot of it. It's just sort of quite mundane, just people watching a football. You know, there's like it's just, you know, it's like if we were watching a football match, I mean, I don't know why you'd want to watch it, but like it's not like shouty and angry all the time. People are just like, oh yeah, you're doing anything later? How are the kids? You know, that well, kind then, of stuff. It, it literally was that. This was my this is why I was interested in going on. It's my first watch along experience. I know Robbie who runs AFTV. And I think it's the kind of noise and the swearing and the and the shouting that gets a lot of the attention. But a lot of what's on their platform actually is just like you say, it's just people talking about football as we are now. And the watch alongs actually are quite dull for most of it, especially when you're losing three 0 in a North London yeah. derby. Um, so that, but it was good fun. But yes, that 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 was me in the back row. At sixty minutes in, surely AFTV should have just said, "Look, we're not winning this. Let's just put on." Let's just put on, you know, Vera and try and guess who did it. Put on, put on Death in Paradise. One of the camera guys did leave after about 70 minutes. He just packed up. He just walked out of the, of the room. <laughs> uh, Nick, you wanted to come in? Oh, um, no, just on a, on a far more prosaic note, it's not the, not the first time since Lasagna Gate, as far as I know. I, I think it was 2013. They were both going for Arsenal and Spurs and Arsenal had to, had to actually go, go to Newcastle, but it was the final weekend of the season, not the penultimate game. And um, I, I think it was, um, I mean, I, um, yeah, Koscielny, Arteta was talking about it a bit the other day, actually, when I, I asked him about it. And um, Koscielny came up with a winner and um, I think it was Arsenal's 16th consecutive Champions League qualification, which uh, seems like a parallel dimension now. But uh, yeah, they've, they've been going for it a few times. 
Oh, well, at least all to play for um, in those last two games. So, you know, the Premier League carries on. Uh, we'll look ahead to the other games in the Premier League and the FA Cup final in just a second. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Sean says, hey, Max, Barry and all, if you're gearing up for a tour of the Americas, why not swing down Pele's way? Will there be a big crowd? Probably not, but that's not stopping you going to Birmingham. Plus, as a fellow Irishman, I'd love to bring Barry and his big ass and the rest of you, I suppose, to a Santos match, followed by some pastel and cerveja. Uh, side note, I couldn't believe Shelbourne got a shout out at the start of the season. I'm convinced I'm the only sucker paying each week to stream their games. Forts are red. Keep up the smashing work. Ate Mace, Sean, which I think is Portuguese. Yeah, we're on the road in June and July, not yet touring Brazil. That's next year. Uh, in Leeds, uh, City Varieties on the 13th of June. Thank you to Chris Hall, who says, I took your subtle hint to buy tickets. I'll be in row B of your Leeds live show in a group of five distinctly average-looking 31-year-old men. Thanks. We will look out for you. That does describe quite a lot of the audience. It might be hard to pick you out. Birmingham on the 15th, 19th of June in Manchester, 4th and 5th of July in Dublin, 8th and 9th of July uh, in London, and 13th of July in Glasgow, myticket.co.uk. Tickets selling at different rates is what I would say. But you know they are selling. You, know, we, you won't. It won't. You won't feel lonely if you come. That's the. That's where we've got to right now. Uh, it's the FA Cup final on Saturday. Liverpool Chelsea at 4:45 p.m. Um, are you looking forward to this one, Barry? I generally love the FA Cup final, but. Uh, as I've mentioned before, a friend of mine has very inconsiderately decided to get married this Saturday and uh, the reception starts at half time in, in the cup final. So I'm looking forward to the first half and then I'll have to go and sit down for a nice meal, which I'm also looking forward to. Um, so to, to Jordan and Nick, who are hoping to watch the whole game, I don't know why I've, I have a sneaky feeling for Chelsea, Nick. Is that stupid or, or not? No, it's, uh, I mean, they are, as much as Chelsea can ever be underdogs, they, they are very much the underdogs for this on recent form. But they, you kind of think after the the uncertainty in the few weeks in the season they've had, this might be the kind of game that means a little bit more to them. And for Thomas Tuchel, I think this will be very, very important to to kind of set down a marker of, of what they're capable of ahead of pre-season and next season. You can imagine them being very, very motivated for this and very wound up for it. And um, Liverpool, of course, have been keeping players a little bit fresh for this game. We saw they 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 mixed things up a bit in their game the other night. So I imagine that Klopp will go full tilt. But I think there's a little bit more on it for Chelsea than there is for, for Liverpool. Again, quite obvious reasons too. The Champions League final coming up um, as well as the title race. And I think 
maybe that might be telling that Chelsea need it a bit more if they need anything. Yeah. Um, we will find out, I guess, how crucial Fabinho is by virtue of the fact that he isn't going to play Jordan and, and sort of feels... Listen, he's not the most important player in that Liverpool team. Well, it's hard to know who is, but he's harder to replace than many of them. I, I think it could be argued he is the most important person in that team, Max. I, I agree with Barry that I don't think he's the most important person, but I think he's he's definitely up there. I, I'm a big fan of Fabinho. I, I think he does a really good job. I'm to this day, I'm still gutted that Arsenal didn't get him when when Liverpool poached him. I think it was just before the Russia World Cup. He kind of slipped him in without anybody noticing. Um, I, 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 my interest in this game is that as an Arsenal fan, I despise Chelsea, but also Liverpool winning a treble annoys me as well. And I don't, I don't want to feed into the whole, you know, everyone's anti-Liverpool, but I, I don't know who I want to win this game. Um, so it's very much a, who's going to annoy me the least um, in terms of the fan base, uh, you know, after winning, winning this cup final. I think it's a blow for Liverpool to have someone like him out of the team, but I do still expect Liverpool to, to, to beat Chelsea. I know Chelsea have a, a reputation of turning up in one-off games in a particular finals and Tuchel's record in finals is very impressive. Um, but but I do still think Liverpool will, will get the job done. I think they'll want to keep momentum going into the last week of the season to try and keep the pressure on on Manchester City. Although I think we all agree that it's it's more than likely that the title was, it will be remaining at the Etihad. But I'm, I'm leaning towards a Liverpool win on, on this fixture. But as you mentioned, Max, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write against Chelsea too much, but their, their form is horrible. I know they what they beat Leeds earlier in the week, but their form is really bad, um, and Liverpool's isn't. So I, I expect Liverpool to win this game. Just on the Fabinho thing, I think there are probably more important players than him in the Liverpool team, but he is probably the one that's the hardest to replace if he's missing. And I, it was noticeable in the game against Villa that after he went off. Villa looked a lot more dangerous, and I think that's because he wasn't there. So he's yeah, he's he's arguably the most irreplaceable. There's like for like replacements for most of the Liverpool team, but not for him. Uh, Chelsea could do an FA Cup uh, double. Their women um, take on Manchester City on Sunday. Of course, if Chelsea win that, uh, they win the double. That's a, a two thirty kickoff. Uh, the title race is still alive. I think we all think. You know, it would be extraordinary. Man City have to drop what four points, uh, Nick, in in this in these two games. They go to the London Stadium. Mark Noble's last home game. Will that be enough to inspire West Ham? I was trying to think: is there a better example of someone who is a servant? You know, currently playing, who is a servant to a football club than Mark Noble? Absolutely not. It's a, it's the epitome of a one one club man. Although I I do remember him at the age of, of, of seventeen or eighteen playing a few games on, on on loan for Ipswich and thinking that he he looked all right. But he's he's gone on and and um, and, and done really well and hopefully have his signs off wonderfully as well. And it will be a good atmosphere in there. But you no, know, City just master everything that comes their way, don't they? Like. Covered their last couple of away games, Wolves the other night, and at least um, the week before. And every, um, every time you think the atmosphere is heating up a bit, or something's gone against them, or someone's getting into them, they just pull away and and, and score another couple. They just have a have a habit of going through the gears and turning it up and cruising it. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure West Ham will get into them, but I'm also sure City will, will win it by a couple. And that feels like the final banana skin, doesn't it? Mm, Barry, you um, you've 
uh, heartily predicted City will slip up in their last two games. Do you see them slipping up in this one? Uh, no. On the evidence of recent performances, no. Um, obviously, Liverpool are playing in the FA Cup final at the weekend. Their penultimate game is away at St Mary's on Tuesday. At the bottom, so Burnley go to Spurs. We kind of mentioned this. Most people seem to think Spurs will win. I don't think it will be straightforward. Leeds host Brighton. Everton host Brentford. Um, uh, Jordan, who's your money on going down now? I know you've changed it a few times. As every team you pre- every team you predict, you pull out a bullshit card. Southampton, uh, they're going, Max. They're going. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's Leeds. I think I think Leeds have um, imploded at the wrong part of the season. Red cards, injuries, you know, lack of goals, um, and the fixtures they've got left. I, I, I think they're going back to the championship. Nick, subscribe to that. Probably Leeds. I would still worry a little bit for Burnley and you could see a world where they're back in the relegation zone after the weekend. But I, I think Leeds, as you say, they've, they've suddenly started steaming in and doing very odd things, whether it's the Dallas challenge against Man City that sadly ended up getting him injured, but it was a bad challenge, or the Ailing challenge um, against Arsenal or the shocking Dan James challenge that we saw the other day. They, they, they've absolutely um, absolutely Rob holding it, really. Um, and I think it's looking bad for them, which you'd never have thought at the start of the season or even when Jesse Marsh took over. Yeah, and, and Brighton have been on good good form as well. Um, uh, Jim says, even if Frank Lampard saves Everton from relegation, should they still get rid of him? He's managed to get them to run about in a couple of games, but he's not done anything tactically amazing to suggest he can get the club going in the right direction in the long term. Barry? It's an interesting question. They won't get rid of him. And I think we'll finally get to see what kind of manager he is next season when he's, you know, it's his team. He'll be able to ship players out, bring players in, and it will be intriguing to see how he gets on. Uh, Beach games, um, uh, Villa Palace, Watford Leicester and Wolves Norwich. So uh, enjoy them if you want to. The playoffs, Uh, Nick, you're going to Kenilworth Road for Luton Huddersfield tonight. Yeah, which is not a playoff game for the Premier League that you would have predicted at the start of the season, would you? No. Or, or, or you certainly would have predicted it in 1987. No, right? yes. Actually, Luton, Luton might have been in the top division in 1987. I take it back. Yeah, they were they were in the top flight in my first ever season watching football, which was at 1991. So I just, I just assumed that I just see them now as a massive sleeping giant, you know, and then... Then the occasional time you visit Kenilworth Road, you you realise that 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 place is not in Premier League condition, shall we say? Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I've I've not not seen too much of either team this season, but I do know that Luton have have um, have a budget that is absolutely minuscule in comparison to pretty much everyone that they're up against. Huddersfield, of course, hadn't had a great couple of years since relegation, um, and. Luton as well have a, a very fiery, passionate man- manager in Nathan Jones. He's always fairly good for a soundbite. So I think it's it's going to be fun. It's fantastic, I think, to see a club like Luton at that stage because we talked so much about how parachute payments are stratifying the championship, which they are. But this is proof that good management and good footballers and a good setup can take you a long way. And um, yeah, let's let's roll it back to 1991. I can't wait. <laughs> Nick, you, you joked there about Kenilworth Road, but is, is it actually fit for Premier League purpose? I've only been there once a long time ago. They were they had fallen out of the league at that stage. Um, but yeah, I, I don't... 
It didn't look like it would be past muster as a Premier League ground. It's a genuinely fair question, joking aside. I mean, I've only been there once this season, and that was to interview a boxer, actually. <laughs> but I, I went to a game a year or two before. It, um, it would need some serious work. I, I'm not off the top of my head au fait with the ground regulations, but it's it's very much behind the times. Um, I think they're obviously due to move to a new stadium at some point fairly soon, aren't they? Um, but Is it the Cola Dome? The Cola Dome. They, they going to some dome about 20, 20 years ago? I mean, I must say, as an away fan, it's brilliant, Kenworth Road. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to reconcile the fact that I always support the underdog. So Luton are clearly the underdog out of these four teams. Sheffield United, Forest playing on Saturday. I don't know. If, I mean, and, and Luton, I sort of have a, a fake rivalry with... I think I, I think I could handle them being in the Premier League. Not like Peterborough. If Peterborough were in this stage, it would just be I would just be feeling physically sick, basically. Um, uh, producer Silas says Luton have long held plans to move to a plush new stadium, uh, twenty three thousand capacity set to be finalised in the coming months. But clearly, that won't be ready uh, in August. But uh, yes, I don't know exactly what they'd have to do. Install seating, right? I mean, safe standing is allowed, but I don't know how the away end, certainly, and the home end is just normal terracing. We will find out as and when. They'd have to move, move to the Abbey Stadium. Oh, come on. Don't do that. It's too good a surface for their style of football. Uh, Sheffield United Forest is on Saturday. The League Two playoffs on Saturday. Mansfield v Northampton. Um, uh, and Swindon Port Vale on Sunday. So I picked out celebrity fans. It's Richard Bacon versus Alan Carr on Saturday. And David Squires versus Robbie Williams on Sunday, Jamo says, "Will Baz be in attendance at Wembley for Sunderland's guaranteed loss to Wickham in the League One playoff final?" I I won't. Um, no, I'm working that day and I can't get it off. Surely you can swing it. Who could do a shift for you to get? Do you, could you be bothered? <laughs> do you want to go? I mean, I, I, to be honest, I've seen Sunderland play at Wembley twice and they've lost both times, so I. It's probably better I stay away. And I, I wouldn't want to take a ticket off a more dedicated fan than we, I am. It's interesting you point that out because Sunderland um, have more fans than they have tickets. Wickham don't. Um, Wickham could sell some of their allocation to Sunderland. What would you do as a club? Would you cash in on the seats or force a quarter of the ground to be empty so your opposition has less of a home advantage? Nick? I would not take the money. I would not want to be in a stadium of 55,000 Sunderland fans to, um, to my 15,000 or 20,000. So no, you want to, you, you want to maximize your, your own marginal gains. Um, and it's not such a marginal gain having a lot of your own fans in. So no, don't take the money. Don't let Sunderland bring any more support. As harsh as that sounds. It does sound harsh. Yeah. Peter says, how do you solve ticket allocations? Like Liverpool, Real Madrid gets 17,000 each. Uh, he talks about, you know, Sunderland having insufficient and Wickham having having too many. The Champions League, you know, does, it feels wrong. I don't know if, the, the, you know, the, the, the tickets that UEFA give away go to people that, I don't know, fund the game or know people who fund the game. And these clubs profit off the game being so rich that is, if it is quite as obvious as all the fans, you know, in my mind... The obvious answer is all the tickets should just go to the fans of the club. It should be 50% Liverpool, 50% Real Madrid. But is there an argument that I'm not seeing about you need to kind of grease the wheels of football if you want football to be so rich? Does that make any sense? I, I think it's a bit rich for clubs or people like Jurgen Klopp to come out and 
complain about the ticket allocation system when they are happy to take the money that comes from being in the tournament. But it is unfair on support that so many supporters miss out. They are generally powerless in these situations. I think I agree with you there, Barry. All right, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we'll do uh, any other business, including Nick, uh, who spent time with the Ukraine national football team uh, ahead of their playoff against Scotland. I'm Grace Dent and I am back for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and self-esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. <laughs> Northern women eating carbohydrates. Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality, Jamie Lang best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace Dent is supported by Ocado. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, now there's an event you can book tickets for uh, with Johnny Lou, uh, Andy Cole, Hope Powell, for a discussion on how black British footballers shape the modern game uh, with the author Callum Jacobs, who's recently published a book on the topic. You remember he came on the pod a few weeks ago. Uh, if you're interested, go to theguardian.com slash black British football event. Um, Nick, you've spent some time with Ukraine national football team uh, ahead of their uh, playoff against Scotland, which is on the 1st of June, I think. Um, what was the atmosphere like? Um, who did you speak to? I know you've done a lot of work sort of on football in Ukraine and on Ukrainian teams uh, in the last few months. Mm, yeah, I was with them in Slovenia um, in their pre-Scotland training camp. They all assembled about 10 days ago at the wonderful Slovenian National Football Centre, which is up in the mountains about half an hour, 40 minutes away from Ljubljana. They 
they were given that space to train um, by um, Alexander Cheferin, the, the UEFA top dog, um, and, and assembled there. And I was very fortunate enough to be given sort of a day and a half, two days behind the scenes, just sort of mill around the team hotel and see who came out of the lift and that kind of thing, and uh, um, watch a bit of training and chat and um, chat to the right people. And obviously. And it's a funny one. You you never know what the mood will be on a situation like that. These were all of their their domestic base players meeting because they've obviously got the players that, that we know very well, like Yarmolenko and Zinchenko, um, who will come after their seasons have finished in in the next fortnight or so. So they were starting with a core of Dynamo Kiev, Shakhtar Donetsk, and a few other players for the first couple of weeks, and then the squad will be freshened up a bit. All of the players I met had pretty much been in Ukraine at the start of the invasion. The the Shakhtar and Dynamo players have, as we might have spoken about in a previous pod, played in charity friendly matches abroad since, but there were one or two others who, who'd been there the whole time. And this was their first taste of actually proper football training or being out of the country or something like this. So I spoke to a, a young goalkeeper called Dmitro Riznik, who plays, plays for Vosla Poltava. That's like a a fairly good Ukraine top-level team. And on the day before Russia invaded, his his wife gave birth. So so he was in, in a maternity hospital for the first a few days. And then for the first fortnight or so, he was sort of going between the bomb shelter and helping his wife and newborn son out. And then for, for the subsequent six weeks or so, he'd been going to the local pitch and training by himself just sort of, I, I think, keeping fit, catching balls, kicking balls, that kind of thing, but training on his own. So to come from that situation where you're training in a very precarious situation by yourself to a national training camp in Slovenia via a 20-hour bus journey, by the way, um, was a, a funny situation for him. And I, yeah, heard, heard a lot of different stories. I, I mean, another amazing one was that um, one of the key midfielders in that squad, Sergei Sidorchuk, who's a Dynamo Kiev midfielder, him and three other national team members um, from Dynamo and Shakhtar. They all spent the first few days of the invasion sleeping in the car park beneath his apartment, using it again as a bomb shelter, um, with their kids in the back of the car, in the boot, and them and their wives, you know, kind of camping out below sleeping bags and and blankets and that kind of thing. So the point being that pretty much everyone I spoke to had been involved in, as a minimum, a, a very un, an uncomfortable physical situation and obviously a terrible emotional situation, obviously, in the previous few weeks. Um, but they were together, and, and I think the task now for their manager, Alexander Petrikov, who I had a long chat with and is, is, is a very engaging guy with a very sort of a kind of dark humour, um, if you like, is how to get them all ready to play Scotland. A Scotland team that we know, we've talked about them before, is very good players at a high level, play at a high tempo, in front of a home home crowd at Hampton. How do you start, how do you get Ukraine going from, from a standing start almost? Because, you know, these players have been playing charity games, but the tempo of those is, is let's be honest, nothing. So they played a friendly against um, the Russian mentioned Gladbach the other night, um, which was useful for them. I think they've got 
maybe not another couple of friendlies, I think, against club teams lined up, but are they going to get a couple of big ones which give you that really competitive workout before playing Scotland? I'm not sure. Um, they won't be lacking for motivation. I mean, one of the interesting things that comes in comes into your head on a situation like this is does does football matter at all are we are we here talking about world cup qualifying and does it really matter but i was hearing from a lot of these guys um Mateus stepanenko for example the quite veteran midfielder saying every day we're getting soldiers on the front line writing to us saying just give us this give us this world cup qualification give us something to enjoy give us this this hope um, this representation of Ukraine. So I I think it is something important just in terms of, of expressing a nationality and expressing a, a culture that um, that we know Russia wants to wipe off the face of the earth if it could. So it's important. Will they be able, be able to beat Scotland and then Wales? I think it's going to be quite difficult with this kind of preparation, but you never know what the what the mentality that is being instilled in, in these guys now and the adrenaline that may well come out when they get on that pitch is going to produce. You know, obviously Scotland and or Wales are, are not going to take the game lightly just because it's Ukraine and the situation that's in Ukraine. And, and, I, and I wonder, because they're elite athletes, you know, there is this kind of feeling of lots of people, you know, just, oh, it'd be great if they got there, couldn't FIFA find a way to get them a buy. But I guess because they are elite sports people, they want to get there on merit, right? Even though, as we've established, it doesn't football doesn't really matter. It was one of the questions to um, um, to the coach Petrikov: Would you have liked a buy? Um, and he said, "No, absolutely not. We want to compete for this." And, it, and he also came out with a quote that I think I think we used as the headline in the piece, which was, "If um, if I qualify this team for Qatar, I'll have lived my life for a reason." You know, he, he kind of. He's 64 years old, and he he was telling a lot about the things he's been through in his life, and he and and he never asked for this this job of all things and this particular task and the context of it. But he now sees it, I think, almost as a personal destiny and a personal mission to to do it for Ukraine and for the country. And I yeah, I I don't think there was anyone in that camp who would have wanted. Um, a handout, if um, if you like, even if a lot of us, you know, outside might have enjoyed it. Nick, that's fascinating. And you, you, we spoke to a, a coach out there that you got us in touch with. You've obviously been in touch with quite a lot of people who were either in Ukraine or had left Ukraine. I just want to, are you still in touch with those people? Because obviously, you know, it, however terrible it sounds, life moves on. You've got other things to do. You've got to go to Luton tonight. You know, like, are you sort of managing to to, to find a way to keep in touch with those people? Yeah, send me a quick WhatsApp message or, or Telegram message here or there. But um, the last time with um, Mladen actually was a couple of weeks ago. So that's a, a decent reminder to drop him a line after this. But uh, he was okay. Um, I, um, I think Nipro, where he lives, has, has, has come under a few more problems recently. But him and his family were the last thing I heard safe, which is good. Great. Um, keep us posted, absolutely. Uh, on that, two less important matters. Uh, Premier League can soon expect to have five teams qualify for the Champions League. 36 teams will take part in uh, the competition of 2024, be guaranteed eight games in a Swiss league system. It's down from a proposed 10 matches, part of a, a crucial compromise um, that also involved movement in how two places will be awarded. A place will be given to each of the two countries whose clubs collectively performed best in Europe the previous year and will be awarded on league position. It could be possible then that England could have seven clubs in the Champions League 
if they won the Champions League and the Europa League and getting a place in the following season's competition if they hadn't qualified through league position. If I've articulated that correctly, we've had a brilliant Champions League this year. Barry, why change it? It's all about money, isn't it? Um, And this seems to be a Super League in all but name. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, would be my view. But um, this is UEFA we're talking about, so... Yeah, I am minded to agree. I mean, part of me thinks, Jordan, you just sort of have to enjoy the football that you're given because otherwise you just have either sort of given up a long time ago or it would just be too tiring to complain. You go, this is how it is now. So I'm not going to be able to change it. I suppose people took to the streets to stop the Super League. So I suppose there is a possibility. People aren't going to take to the streets to stop the Swiss model. It's just a harder chant, isn't it? It doesn't quite fit onto a hashtag, does it? It's not quite a snappy. Um, yeah, I often think to myself if people just sit in rooms sometimes and really fancy glass offices and think up ways to change the rules of football and things they think are going to make it more enjoyable. But as Barry said, these are just ways to try and make more money. If there's a means to get potentially seven Premier League clubs in the Champions League, that feels like a yeah a Super League light to try and appease the biggest nations, biggest footballing club, sorry, from the nations in the world um, and, 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 you know, bringing more revenue streams. Um, but you, you're, you're right. You have to just sometimes just accept that they're going to mess it up and just be thankful for the, for the, for the good games that, that do come your way when they come your way because the model of, of, of football at the moment it just seems to be being penetrated and, and ruined so, so often now by the people that run the game. There's not really much you can do to resist it, although I accept that there was some pushback, as you mentioned there, with the Super League. It also seems to me that it's often a way, isn't it? You suggest something that's preposterous and gets people up in arms, and then that lets you put through something slightly less preposterous, and people are like, oh, okay, that, that's not as bad, is it? And and in in this case, the coefficient um, point that they were trying to get through, that a lot of fan groups were very much pushing back against them, well done to the supporter groups who who managed to stay that off. I know a lot of hard work went in. Um, and now we've got this system where, where, yeah, as you say, we can end up with five, six, seven in English clubs in the Champions League, which might be, might be great for the top flight here, but it's not great for European football, not great for the competition. But we will see it as a victory, or people will see it as a victory over what could have been a less appetising scenario. So you kind of get accustomed like that. I think the interesting thing is, had it been this season, England would have had an extra club and the Netherlands would. And I was like, okay, well, at least that's not just, you know, England and Spain getting extra clubs or, you know, the the biggest leagues. You talk about a, a, you know, come up with something sort of pretty outrageous and then rein it back and people accept it. Does that mean Newcastle's new away kit will just be green trim? It won't actually be the entire Saudi Arabia kit? And should we, you know, of all the things we should be worried about about this... Um, you know, ownership. Is this something that we really should be exercised about, Barry, or not? Well, for anyone who doesn't know, um, Craig Hope from the Daily Mail broke a story last night. The Newcastle are, are their away kit next season is going to be white with green trim, more or less a direct mod and a green badge, more or less modelled on the Saudi Arabian national shirt. On the one hand, it's just a shirt and it doesn't matter what colour it is, which is what many Newcastle fans are saying on Twitter. But on the other hand, I suspect they'd soon change their tune if if the new away shirt was, say, 
red and white stripes with a badge with a big ship on it in an homage to a certain club a few miles up the road. They probably wouldn't be so blasé then. And the fans, of course, will argue that there's nothing they can do about this, and maybe there isn't, but they were never slow in piping up whenever the previous owner of Newcastle did something outrageous that displeased them. And this is, I suppose, further evidence of, of sports washing in action. The latest uh, tourism ambassador for Saudi Arabia is Lionel Messi, as Tarek Panja of the New York Times tweeted, man's got to eat. Um, uh, yes, he, he, he earned $122 million last year. Uh, yeah, he's interestingly taken that ambassador for Qatar World Cup as well. So not many people managed to do both, but good luck to you, Lionel. Aston Villa, we established yesterday, have bought Philip Coutinho. I just wanted, Jordan, if you wanted to find it a way of saying this was a terrible idea. It's awful. I think it's disgrace. <laughs> well overpriced. What are they doing? Villa fans, shocking. And I, I blame the Villa fans, by the way, just, just to put on record. <laughs> Andrew says, how many of Michael Owen's NFTs have you bought? Uh, uh, Michael Owen set up a no-lose NFT project, live-streamed how to use it. Joey Durso in The Athletic, writing that it was issued in partnership with a company called Osidon. Andy Green, the company's co-founder, appeared to directly contradict Owen, clearly stating that NFTs can lose value. Michael Owen was saying the idea is you cannot sell this NFT for less than the price you initially bought it for. But it is possible that no one will want to buy it for the price you initially bought it for, which would then render it completely worthless. Uh, Owen previously promoted Derace NFT, selling pictures of horses as digital tokens. Some horses were changing hands for up to $100,000. Since then, they're selling in the low hundreds of dollars. So anyway, look, it pays your money, you take your chance. Um, uh, it is not for us to say whether you should buy some NFTs or not from Michael Owen. I will not be buying any myself. I'm still not sure what an NFT is. and <laughs> We've discussed them at great length on this podcast, so I won't be buying one either. Matt says, when are the Wayne Rooney courtroom sketch NFTs becoming available? That's a very good question. Well done to Fulham. Uh, Sam says, what's the best worst bit of club branded tat? Fulham have released a EFL champions wooden cheese board, which is very Fulham, isn't it? Uh, listen, we're, we're rattling through things because we're sort of running out of time. Worth mentioning Marcelo, who's been demoted to Leon reserves for farting. Uh, he denies the charge. He was uh, was in the dressing room after a match in Angers. Uh, the 34-year-old centre-back was removed from the first team immediately. This is the uh, uh, same player who who got a second yellow card for accidentally knocking knocking the first yellow card out of a referee's hand at one point. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I mean, I don't know. Being able to do it on demand is quite... Well, I mean, did he, did he do it in someone's face or at a... I mean, I've been... Well, I haven't been in a dressing room for a long time, but, you know, farting was quite commonplace and not really a disciplinary... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when you're doing it during the team talk, I, I'm not aware. Maybe I, should, I haven't read enough about the story. We'll perhaps we'll go into it in detail during the fallow months of June and July. Um, just a bit of reaction to yesterday's pod. Craig says it was about time someone called out Barry's ass. Uh, Neil said um, I love the way Lucy Ward went for Barry early yesterday. A bit like going for the big daddy when you walk into prison for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but the Munich train expert still rules the roost, as always. Yeah, Lucy, you come with the king, you best not miss. <laughs> anyway, uh, lots of people said uh, uh, how much they enjoyed that. And yeah, Lucy is a welcome addition 
to the Football Weekly family. And uh, that'll do for today's pod. Uh, Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Max. Uh, Cheers, Jordan. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Barry. Thanks, Max. Guardian Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray with George Cooper. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. For the listeners and for Barry, we'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.